Before I read our next lesson, I just extend a word of greeting and welcome to those who are worshiping by way of live streaming today. We are thankful for your participation in worship in this manner and look forward when, for that day when you can be perhaps with us in person as you are able. But we certainly consider many of our members uh, stream live and participate in this service and are not capable of being with us. And we want you to know what an integral part of the life and work of this congregation you remain. Our scripture today uh, is a reminder of the visit of the wise man that Keith was just talking about. So uh, let us listen for the word of God as it is found in the second chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and when you have found him, bring me word that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been, been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tomorrow, as you know by now, is the 6th of January, the 12th day of Christmas and a festival day in Christendom known as the Feast of Epiphany. It is on this day that we remember and recall and try to learn from that ancient and poignant story about the visitation of those strange characters from the east at the manger in Bethlehem, these gift-bearing wise men who journeyed from afar to discover the meaning and the message of that star they had seen at its rising. They dared to stop along the way of their journey and to go to the king and ask for directions for where this child was to be born. Theologically and liturgically, this is a significant event in the life and story of Christ because Epiphany celebrates the manifestation, the revealing of the Son of God to the peoples beyond Judaism and beyond Judea, that here was a child that was born for all the peoples of the earth. And this morning I would like for us to look at some of the characters in this epiphany drama and see if we can see any reflections of ourselves or of others in the way that they responded to the gift of the light of the world, to the gift of this child born among them. Because I'm convinced that most of us, and indeed most all people, embody or reflect three different stances that we can find in the story of Epiphany. 
And first, I would have you notice just the posture of the wise men themselves. Matthew tells us that after arriving in Jerusalem, the capital city, they ask for directions. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Now, this is an amazing and miraculous thing. It may have been the first and only time in recorded history when men actually stopped and asked for directions. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I have in mind. Something more amazing than that occurs here. That these were men of science and learning, and yet they dared to go to the king of a foreign country in the capital city and in the presence of a partisan crowd ask this incredible question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? knowing that there was already a king on the throne. Because we have seen his star at its rising, they say. And we want to know the answer to this mystery. Of course, back in that day, especially farther east than that, over in the area of Persia, men were convinced that the destiny of men and of nations was somehow shaped by the stars. And so that if they saw some unusual stellar phenomenon, they looked for its meaning. And they sought out its message. Now, were these wise men the only one who saw that star at its rising? We don't know. Were they the only ones who pursued the star to find out the meaning of the message behind it? We don't know. So far as we know, they're the only ones who either saw or sought out that star and its message. They were convinced that God was doing something new and miraculous and different in the world. And they wanted to know what it was. And be a part of it. So what can we learn from their response to this new thing that God had done in their time and midst? Well, basically these men, whatever their number, and we don't know that. Whatever their country of origin or the circumstances of their birth. They lived with what might be described as an open-ended thing. That life itself is open-ended. That miracles are still possible. That God can and do amazing and miraculous things, sometimes in very unexpected ways and places. The wise men must have believed this, or they would never have set out on this safari that carried them all across the deserts to the land of Judea. For they had observed the star, and they had committed themselves to finding out its message for them and for others. And so I ask us on this eve of Epiphany, are we as observant today or as open to God's miraculous intervention in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, in our church, in our nation, in our world? Do we believe that God is still capable of performing miracles and doing amazing and wondrous things? Of course, we expect miraculous and wonderful things in the areas of technology and science. We marvel at what men of science can accomplish by their curiosity and their uh, ingenuity. But what about in the realm of social relations? What about in human relations, within homes, within the nation, within the world? Are we as open that, to God's doing something new and miraculous and amazing in those areas that don't involve human inventiveness? I'm not so sure. The social sciences have not advanced much over the generations and we still are plagued with the malignancies of war and injustice and immorality and starvation and famine and warfare. In terms of human relations, in terms of social sciences, we don't seem to have benefited very much for all of our scientific sophistication 
and our technological prowess. And yet I am convinced that wise men and wise women can still believe that God is capable of doing miraculous and amazing things, maybe in ways that we would least expect. And perhaps the miracle more of us ought to be open to is the possibility that God might do something miraculous within us, within our marriages, within our homes, and consequently, that we can be used to make a difference in God's world, in this church, in this community, if we're only open to what the light that God is sending to us. Another thing that impresses me about the wise men is not simply their belief that God could do something miraculous and amazing, but that they were willing to search it out at great cost to themselves personally. Can you imagine how they were ridiculed by their peers as they set off on this journey? It was a journey that cost them a lot in terms of money, time, energy, courage. And yet they were willing to risk all of this to discover what God might be speaking to his world. I fear that too many people today and too many of us within the church cut ourselves off from hearing or experiencing the miraculous simply because we're not open to the possibility that it could actually occur that God would do something new, something different, something very unexpected. And yet, isn't faith a risk? Are we not called to be vulnerable, to be open to what God might be doing in us and through us? Are we willing to expose ourselves to ridicule or hurt or embarrassment in an effort to pursue the will and the purposes of our God? And so for these mysterious wise men and for all of their kin throughout the generations, life is not closed-end. God is neither dead nor silent. The universe is open and remains the arena for God's miraculous and redemptive work. A second response to the coming of Christ into the world and the availability of this new light to humankind is found in the response of King Herod. We read, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why so? Well, unlike the wise men, King Herod was anything but a dreamer. He would never go off on some whimsical, ridiculous journey such as that undertaken by these men from the east. No, sir, King Herod was a ruthless, practical, selfish realist. He was a cold pragmatist. And so when the news of the birth of a new king reached his ears, he was immediately threatened politically and personally. And so he chose to do something about it. Herod was no fool. He knew that there was only one room for one king in Judea, and he had not planned to abdicate his position. And so it was that Herod issues this unconscionable decree that all male children in the whole region, two years old and under, be put to death, thinking that he could eliminate thereby his rival to the throne. Herod, quite rightly, has received a lot of bad press over the years. Nevertheless, he does have some positive traits. Uh, He was the only Roman ruler to bring order out of chaos in that fractured portion of the world. He ruled for some 40 years. He He exercised tremendous power, both for good and for ill. He managed to keep the peace. 
He did some of the most magnificent building projects in the course of human history. And that's why Herod is often called Great. Uh, Herod the Great. Because of his building projects. Maybe some of you have visited some of the remains that are still there today. Caesarea Maritima, his palace there, the town he constructed, the harbor he constructed there, Masada, all kinds of building projects, including the temple in Jerusalem, which he was uh, uh, restored and, and built. So Herod had his moments of glory and of uh, greatness, and yet despite all of that, he had a terrible flaw in his nature, one that you and I might recognize within ourselves and within others. He was insanely jealous. He was suspicious of anyone who might be a rival to his power. And the older he became, the more ruthless and vengeful he grew to be. So that at the end of his life, he was simply a murderous old man. He would eliminate anyone who challenged his authority or his prominence. Not just the unknown children of Jerusalem that he slaughtered by the thousands, but others as well. Over the course of his 40-year reign, he had his own wife, Miriamne, murdered. He had his mother-in-law, Alexandria, assassinated. He even had three of his own sons killed when he suspected that they had designs on the throne. So much so, that Caesar Augustus said of Herod, who kept a kosher diet, by the way. He kept a diet just like many of his Jewish subjects. But Caesar Augustus said of Herod, it was better to be his pig than to be his son. A pig was safe around him because he was, ate a kosher diet. But his sons, three of them, he killed. Herod represents that persuasion that says life is to be selfishly seized and exploited and dominated and manipulated for one's own ego and for one's own purposes in life. And those who believe that a person should look out for themselves and their interests first and foremost have a real friend in Herod. Nice guys finish last. Was practiced by Herod long before it was ever uttered by Leo de Rocha. Herod believed that only the strong survive that the race belongs to those who are not afraid to assert themselves at all costs, no matter what it costs other people, what it costs ethics or, or morality. And God help anyone who gets in their way. For Herod, you see, there was no such thing as the unexpected, only that for which a person was unprepared. Now Herod's response, as corrupt and evil as it may be, is no less popular 21 centuries later. It is endorsed by many political leaders, by many nations, by many parties, political parties and corporations and special interest group who opt to protect themselves and their interests above everything else at any, everyone's expense. And all of humanity's, in, all of mankind's inhumanity to man, all selfish exploitation of one group by another is sadly reminiscent of King Herod of old. And of course, if we're honest, we have to admit that maybe sometimes Herod's approach to life appeals even to us as people of faith because we see that so often in life, the Herods of this world seem to be the ones that are rewarded. And we're tempted to adopt their tactics, to fight fire with fire, if you will. And yet as appealing that as this may be from time to time, this isn't a permanent condition for us, or we wouldn't be here this morning in worship, nor would many other millions of people around the world. 
Why should a community gather around one life that was lived over 20 centuries ago and say that in that one single life is the answer to the meaning of human existence, is the greatest truth ever revealed about God and of man? You see, it's really harder to explain the reaction by the world to Christ than it is the reaction by the world to to the Herods because experience and history sometimes seems to vouch for Herod's approach. But the world is strangely drawn in this season of the year and in others to that light that emanates from that child in the manger and not to that coming from this ruthless and mad and pragmatic king called Herod. Before closing, let me say that there's another response to what God was doing in Christ in that child in the manger. And this third response is easy to miss in reading the story of Epiphany. We find it in those to whom Herod turns for information. We read, and calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. Now here's the thing. Not only in sacred literature, but in secular histories written at the time, in Roman histories, there is obvious that there was an expectation among the hoi polloi, the common people, that a new ruler was about to be born and it, he would oversee a universal empire. Now combine that bit of information from that culture at that time with the knowledge of the scriptures saying that the Messiah would come and where he would be born. And you have to wonder, why weren't these scribes and Pharisees seeking out this child? The reason for the star. Why didn't they beat the wise men to the manger? They knew the answer to the question where the child was to be born. They didn't need a star to guide them. And yet they made no effort to search out the meaning of the star or its message. Why not? They're cold, detached, unconcerned about what this new work of God might be. They busied themselves with other things, I suppose. They viewed more important than the birth of Messiah, right seven miles away from where they were at the time. What were they so preoccupied with? Political maneuvering? Temple rituals? Enforcing or arguing about religious law and expectations? Here the Messiah was being born in their very midst. And they're too disinterested, too oblivious even to go search out the child. Reminds me of a story I heard one time about when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out in Russia in 1917 in the streets of what was later St. Petersburg. The Orthodox Church was engaged in a fierce debate. They were locked in solemn assembly. And you know what they were arguing about? How long the fringe should be on the robes of the priest. The world was coming apart out in the streets while they were gathering. And they were worried about such matters. There's a sense in which these chief priests and scribes, along with all of their heirs in human history, are the most depressing of all the cast of characters in the story of Epiphany. Because they remain so detached, so unconcerned, So uncommitted. Herod at least took God seriously. 
Herod believed enough in God to know that he was capable of raising up a rival to the throne. For Herod, God may have been a rival, but he wasn't dead. Not so for these scribes and Pharisees. They ceased to believe that God was capable of doing anything new or miraculous because they had already figured out God. They had already systemized their theology. They already had God in a box, and they were not about to change their perceptive of who God was or what God was doing in the world. I'm reminded there was a question in the parade magazine this morning by the Ask Marilyn, I think it is, and she, people ask her some question. And the person asked, what do you call someone who in, in the face of much evidence to the contrary continues to believe in something that can't be true, that they don't want to accept? And she said, what you call them is normal. That's what most people do. We believe what we want to believe or choose to believe and refuse to be open to something new that God might be about in our world. The pathetic scribes and Pharisees. We understand why Jesus referred to them on one occasion as people who are like dead tombs or tombs with dead bones inside of them. See, the chief priests and scribes, they had God all figured out. They were not willing to risk anything new or to take any adventures to discover something that God might be saying different in the past to the world. They were religious but not faithful. And it's tempting to be religious today instead of faithful. We can spend all our time memorizing scripture or defining creeds or debating beliefs or condemning infidels who don't believe as we do and be blind to what God is doing right under our feet in our own homes, in our own churches, in our own neighborhoods, in our own world. And if God happens to do something that we don't expect or is not a part of our tradition, we don't even recognize it. That was Jesus' problem throughout his ministry. He was not the kind of Messiah that people wanted or thought they needed or expected, and so they didn't recognize him when he walked the roads with them. And so if the wise men were drawn to the light of God, and if Herod was threatened by it, then the chief priests and the scribes were simply oblivious to it. So where are we? We have these three stances. How do we respond to the work that God is doing in our world today? How do you respond to the light that is coming into your light, your life, in this new year that's just recently dawned? There are three approaches to what God is up to in the world. But it was only those wise men from the east who dared to go on an adventure. Who dared to risk believing something new and different. Daring to believe that God was capable and indeed was able to do something different in the world. And it was these wise men, we call them, who eventually found the child in the manger. Paid homage to him and bowed down before that life that was then and is now the final truth about God and man and the ultimate meaning of all life. So how is it with you on Epiphany Eve 2020? Are you even open to the fact that God may want to do something new and different and miraculous in your life, in your home, in your community? Are you willing to go and find out what it is? To seek it out? Are you willing to ask questions that might challenge some of your previous presumptions? 
God is still doing miraculous and redemptive work in the world. And I hope and pray that as his people, we are open to that and willing to pursue it and to participate in it. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, your light has come among us in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Help us to respond to the gift of this light, not with resentment and jealousy, as did Herod, not with cold detachment and indifference, as did the chief priests and scribes, but rather like the Magi, with wonder and faith and curiosity and courage and adoration. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.